Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Now, I do want to talk about Thanksgiving, uh, gratitude, and uh, how their connection with faith. I want to tell you a quick story first. My first real job was at uh, St. Joseph IGA back in high school, uh, bagging groceries mostly, restocking sale items, clean up, you know, uh, facing up the aisles before we left. It was absolutely the low-rung job, starting position for practically every guy that worked there, of course. It was, it was doing the same job, and you worked, I don't know, 15, 20 hours a week after school. And uh, I took it, I took the job pretty seriously. I liked the job, I wanted the job, and I wanted to do a good job because I wanted to keep the job wasn't great money. They, uh, because I wasn't 18, I think they didn't have to pay me uh, minimum wage at the time. I don't know what the rules are now, but minimum wage at the time, I think, was only 310. If I remember right, I had a starting wage of 265 as a training wage, which I know that just must sound ancient. I must sound like my grandpa sounded to me talking about, I used to get five Cokes for a nickel or something like that. But, but everything was a little cheaper back then, too. But then before you knew it, I was making minimum wage of 310. And then shortly after that, minimum wage went up to 365. Somebody already got me one, but thank you, son. Anyway, I'm extra thirsty this morning. Uh, so anyway, I, I hadn't been working there very long when I think I was making $3.65 an hour, somewhere in that neighborhood. But after the better part of a year, I wanted to raise. And I thought I was a good employee. So I asked somebody, not, a, not one of the bosses, but somebody who'd been there long enough to know, one of the managers, how, how do raises happen? And he said, well, the thing is, you've got to ask for one. Uh, it'd be amazing if they ever just surprised you with a raise. But if you ask for one, all they can do is say no, which sounds easy. But, you know, there were, there were two owners, two bosses, and one was pretty easygoing and easy to talk to, and one was not. So I went to the easygoing one, the one that was easy to talk to, and I said, uh, hey, you know, I just, why am I trying to be a pain? I, I like the job and everything, but uh, what would be the chances of getting a raise? You know, I've been here a year-ish. And he says, well, it's really not up to me. You need to talk to the other guy. Oh, got it. So I didn't. I just thought, well, I'll just hold off on that, work up some courage. Maybe I'll work ec- extra hard, get his attention, but... But I think the guy that I talked to did say something to him because the next week, he just out of the blue came up to me in the aisle and said, Scott, we like you. We think you're doing a good job. And so uh, you'll notice on your paycheck this week that, you, that we've given you a raise. Great news, right? Now, how was I supposed to respond at that moment? It's a pretty easy answer, right? I had not seen the raise yet is the point I want to make. He told me I had it, but I hadn't gotten that paycheck yet. I didn't know how much it would be. And technically, I didn't really know if there would be a raise at all. But what if I had said, first of all, what took you so long? Scott, we like you. We want to keep you. We want to make you happy. So you'll notice an increase in your pay in this week's paycheck. Really, about time. Um, what? What if I had from that moment, every time I ran into him, 
said, uh, hey, don't forget, you promised a raise in that next paycheck. Just letting you know, I haven't forgotten it. Looking forward to that paycheck because you said there'd be a raise. I'm really counting on that raise you promised. Or how about this? This would be, I think, the worst response. Scott, we like you. Once you're happy, you're going to notice a raise on your next paycheck. What if I'd responded, I'll believe it when I see it. This was a man who did not, as far as I know, know the Lord. I did not have a real personal relationship with him. We were friendly, but we were not friends. He was just my boss. But you know what? When he said I had gotten a raise, I believed him. And here was my response from the heart. Thank you. Thank you for what? I didn't have the check yet. Thank you because I believed him. He gave me a raise that was as good as having the raise. In my mind, at that moment, it was as good as having the money. I never said another word to him about it. I just did my job, and I thought about payday. I could hardly wait to payday because I wanted to see if it was true. I wanted to see, I, I, not because I wanted to see if it was true. I knew it was. The only mystery was how big is the raise going to be? Just to see that actual increase? And I don't want to drag this illustration out too far because it's not complicated, it's not deep. Uh, but I just kind of think maybe if my response had been any of those other things, what took you so long, about time, I'll believe it when I see it, I just might have forfeited that raise. What if I, here's another thought, what if I opened my check that week and there hadn't been a raise? Maybe I think, oh, maybe there's a misunderstanding and it kicks in next pay period. And then another week goes by, no raise. Did he forget? Now what? Do I say something? I mean, it's not like he has to give me a raise. He's not obligated. But he did tell me he'd want to know, right? It's torture. And I didn't have to go through any of that because it was there. Now again, this isn't a deep, layered illustration, but let's break it down anyway. Uh, first with a couple of general observations and then into some specifics from Scripture. God, of course, has made many promises to us. And when we learn of those promises, our response shouldn't be anything other than thank you. It certainly shouldn't be, I'll believe it when I see it. And the reason our response shouldn't be anything other than thank you is because he is much more trustworthy than any man, any woman, who ever made a promise to us. And also because he loves us more than anybody has ever loved us. He is invested in you. He's invested in me. And he delights in keeping his promises. And he never forgets. You know that, right? Simply hearing the promises, reading the promises, knowing the promises should be enough to make us say thank you. And let me say this now. Uh, it really belongs at the end, but it's not in my notes, and so I'm not sure I'll remember. Uh, I was raised, I'm very thankful. I'm, this is really a sermon about thankfulness. And uh, I was raised believing that the Bible was true. That shouldn't shock anybody, and I think most of you were too. And that was something you more or less took for granted. I did not know the Bible very well. 
What I knew about the Bible, I learned in Sunday school class and what little I picked up during main service uh, as a boy in a mainline denom denominational church. But I took it for granted that the Bible was true. So that by the time I began to take uh, my relationship with God seriously, nobody had to convince me of the truth of Scripture. They just had to show me something in Scripture. Do you see the difference? I didn't have to be convinced that, well, I, nobody, I didn't have to wrestle with how could a man live for three days inside the belly of a whale or a great fish. You know, Jesus called it a whale. Jonah called it a fish. Therefore, Whales are fishes. Anyway, I didn't have to wrestle with any of this stuff. You know, cow, could, could all the animals really fit on the ark? Blah, 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 blah. That stuff, I didn't sweat that stuff. I think I knew intuitively what, uh, was it Tozer that said that? Just give me Genesis 1-1 and nothing else poses a problem. If God spoke the universe into existence... I have no problem believing he can keep a man alive inside the belly of a fish for three days or keep an ark afloat with all the animals, whatever. I understand that there are people who don't come from that background, and so they, they have to be convinced, they have to be shown the, the trustworthiness of Scripture. And I, I'm also thankful for the opportunity I've had to study those things. I never really went through a serious period of doubt about the Bible, but... Uh, but there were moments, there were things I had to wrestle through, and thank God there are plenty of great teachers and materials out there. I just want to let you know that I am grateful for the starting point I had with my relationship with God. And a lot of that uh, credit goes to Mom for raising us and reading these stories and telling us these stories. Even before we as a family truly became believers. Sorry, I'm still messing with this. It feels like it's falling off my ear. Got a new microphone thing. Isn't it cool? Goes all the way around the back of my head now. Uh... Is this still okay? All right. And I've just been kind of uh, meditating on the things I have to be thankful for. And in fact, got uh, several calls this week, and, and people still continue to reach out through Facebook, uh, email, text, things like that. But I got a couple phone calls this week from, from ministers who just are calling follow-up saying, how are you doing since Dad died? How's your mom? How's your family? How are you guys doing? Are you doing okay? And... Uh, uh, and, so, and a friend of mine um, called just yeah, he said, I know this has got to be a huge adjustment. I said, well, it is. I said, the adjustment is waking up every day in a world that dad's not in anymore. But I have to tell you, there hasn't been this overwhelming, grieving sadness. It's, if you ask me to, to sum up how I felt, at least over the last week or so, is just this sense of gratitude that I had the dad I had. And uh, the legacy he left, the father he was, the boss he was, the, the every, every, just for having had a good dad. I'm thankful for everything that he invested in me, in my, in my family, and, uh, and this church. Just gratitude. Gratitude. And we need to find those things. I'm not thankful for every single thing that happens in the world. And just as we sang earlier, I, he's working all things for my good. I want to remind you, that doesn't, that's not the same thing as saying God causes everything that happens. He takes everything that happens, even if it happens because you did something stupid, he can cause it to work out for your good. 
if you'll trust him with it and love him through it. Anyway, um, yes, the thankfulness. As when we read a promise, hear a promise, know a promise, it ought to prompt a thank you because of God's trustworthiness and the simple fact uh, that the word of God is true. Now, we kind of know this as faith people. We know better when we're facing a trial, when we're facing a sickness, a disease, for instance. We know better, better than to say, Lord, I'd sure like to be healed, but whatever your will is, let it be done and let me be okay with it. I've told this story, and some people say that's a very spiritual way to pray. Well, Lord, I'm not going to pray for anything specific, just your will be done. I was attending a CNMA church, a Christian Missionary Alliance church in Indiana for about a year, and good people, they loved the Lord uh, they, they were evangelistic-minded. They, uh, they were a praying people. Uh, and, but I remember there was a, a couple, a family in that church who leaned more toward, and, and CNMA churches do have a pretty uh, deep roots in the charismatic movement, okay? Uh, Tozer, who I just mentioned, was, uh, was uh, Christian Missionary Alliance. Uh, but um, this family, they leaned a little bit more toward word of faith, and their daughter got sick, uh, with uh, some kind of cancer and they were taking some time off just to visit some churches and go and see some things as a family uh, she had some medical appointments to keep at different hospitals and so when they'd find themselves in a different city they would find a really good uh, word of faith church and go to it and they said we're just going to let as, as many congregations who will join us in praying for her healing we want their faith involved in this and while they were gone our pastor led us in a prayer and we the whole congregation and there were only um, a hundred of us probably uh, just got in a circle around the uh, inside of the sanctuary, and we all held hands as the pastor led us in prayer. And I thought, and it was the most, for a while, it was w the most faith-filled prayer I had ever heard him pray. Father, we know that all healing comes from you. We know that you desire good things for your children. And uh, Jesus, Jesus bore uh, in those with those stripes on his body, he bore our sicknesses and our pains. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is sounding like a rhema prayer. And he goes for a couple minutes in this vein. He says, however, if it is not your will to heal this girl, if it serves your purposes more that she lose her life and go on to heaven, please help us be okay with that. And I was just like, oh. Now, I would be okay with a prayer like that if you could show me any indication in Scripture where Jesus was ever okay with that. Where God ever indicated that his purposes are served by something like that. Now, you think, well, Scott, just last week you read where God said, I'll send sickness on you. You can't tell me that sickness is never God's will. When you look at what I read or any reference, I'll show you a verse in Micah where God just flat out says, I will make you sick. Because people will talk about, well, sickness never comes from God. He just, he just pulls back his hand of protection. Well, maybe he just makes us sick by pulling it back of his hand, his hand of protection. That may be, but he still said that. But in what context does God ever say that? It is always in what? Judgment. These Old Testament passages where God says, I'll make you sick, I'll do this, it's always in, in the context of judgment. Guess what? We are New Testament believers, and our judgment has fallen on Jesus Christ. You get that, right? 
So, when, and I get passionate about this. When we talk about word of faith, I'm, much, I'm more passionate about healing than anything else because, uh, sorry, when we look at the ministry of Jesus, and this is the most convincing. People say, well, why are you so, uh, why, why are you so convinced that healing is for today? Uh, number one, what I just said, the Old Testament uh, truth and the judgment and, and the, the cross and everything. But really, the, the, the ministry of Jesus, the fact that he healed them all. Every time there was a multitude, every time the sick people came out of that multitude, it says Jesus healed them all. Healed them all. Never once did he say, God's trying to increase your character here. Uh, God's working something great through this. You're not going to receive your healing, but don't worry. The important thing is God's going to get the glory. And he said, the, the things that, you, that I do, are, the only things that I do are the things that I see my Father in heaven doing. Jesus was an exact representation of God the Father and his will. And you know, people will often refer to uh, the word of faith disparagingly as the health and wealth gospel. Uh, and I've said this many times before, I think more often than not, the critics uh, are criticizing something that is really nothing more than a gross caricature of the Bible message of the word of faith. Uh, I do, if I'm going to be really honest, I think the wealth side of that equation has been abused more than the health side of that equation. Uh, but it really, really time, uh, I think it comes down to your, uh, your definition of prosperity. Okay? Abundance is something that, uh, let me just put it this way. I don't believe God delights in the sickness of his children, which is why he always healed them all. And I don't believe God the Father delights in our poverty either. Prosperity is something any good father, what good father wants his kid to be poor? It doesn't reflect good on the father. He wants us prosperous. It's just a matter of, well, how do you define prosperity? And that's something we can talk about down the road. Uh, but in, the fact is, he has promised abundance in every area of life, including our finances. Right? I mean, going back to what we read in Deuteronomy last week, there was an awful lot in there about abundance and prosperity, and all the promises are what? Yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Go listen to last week's sermon. If I've made a couple of references to that. Anyway, I got off track a little about that. When we pray, we pray in faith. And what's that mean? We pray according to our understanding of God's will. I see a promise of healing in God's word, and I pray according to that. I don't practice false humility and pretend, I don't know what your will is, Lord. I know what it is. I'm not going to pretend I'm ignorant of it when it comes to my healing because I see a promise and I claim it as mine. And one of the easiest ways we claim it is to thank him for it. But that, I'm beginning to think, is sometimes where we can, if we're not very, very careful, go off track a little bit. Because the thank you can become a sort of code phrase, another way of simply asking for it or trying to get it from God. Instead of saying, Lord, please heal me, because that doesn't sound like faith, we say, thank you for healing me. And that's, that's correct as far as it goes. But sometimes what we really mean is nothing more than please heal me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for healing me. Thank you, Lord, for healing me. Oh, please, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for healing Thank you for that raise. Thank you for that raise. And never mind, I haven't forgotten you promised me that raise. I know that raise is coming, right, right, right? I thank you for that raise. Nothing wrong with thanking him and thanking him. Don't, this is about being uh, grateful, all right? But are we really thanking God from a place of assurance, a place of peace? Or are we employing faith talk in order to try to change our circumstances? Listen, we read a long passage from Deuteronomy last week that I'm not going to read again. And we rejoiced 
that these promises are still for us. So we see spelled out promises of abundance, promises of health, promises of victory, security, protection. Let me read a couple uh, shorter passages today. In Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus said this, I give you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Jeremiah 29.11, these are really, uh, are these scriptures somewhat familiar to you this morning? For I know uh, the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Second Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those, heart, those whose heart is loyal to him. Now, we talked a few weeks ago about how, well, people will look at this verse, like that, ver- that last one. That, that's part of a verse, and it's one of my favorites. He goes on to say, you've done foolish, foolishly, and from here on, uh, you'll have wars. Uh, he was talking about how you don't need to worry. Uh, King Asa had tried to take things into his own hand and, and, and ended up displeasing God toward the end of his reign. And uh, God's saying, you, you, you forgot... You, f- you forgot something. You did this wrong. You did foolishly. And because you did foolishly, you're going to have wars. But he s- prefaces it with that remark, which is a truth that stands on its own, which is that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro. God is actively looking for somebody whose heart is loyal to him. Why? So that he can show himself strong on your behalf. We don't have to do this. We don't have to jump up and down and scream and cut ourselves and set ourselves on fire fast or anything like that to get God's attention. We just need to get our attention on God because his eyes are already going like this. Where's that person that I can show myself strong on their behalf? Now we're going to read Psalm 91. We'll read the whole thing, but it's not very long. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in him I will trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. You know, uh, in the New New Living Version, New Life Version, I think, uh, that perilous pestilence is called the killing sickness. It's referred to as the killing sickness twice in this psalm. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked, because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You shall trample underfoot. And then the rest of this is God speaking. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. 
I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Wow. Try to imagine, put yourself in a position where you have just become convinced or have always been convinced that you know, I mean you know, that the Bible is true. And that you are just discovering these passages. Just Psalm 91 for the first time. Imagine walking into a job. You got hired. You wanted the job. You're pretty sure you wanted the job. It's stuff you want to do. It's a boss you like. You've heard great things about the company. And then he hands you, you're hired. Here's your benefits package. And you start reading through it. And in addition to the salary, you discover you get a company car full dental, full medical, bonuses. Uh, and they start telling you other things that, uh, other rights you have as an as a employee of this particular company. And every page you turn, it's just one more fantastic benefit. What are you going to say? Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. This, oh, thank you. Thank you. This ought to hit us this way when we read this psalm. Even if we've read it a hundred times, it's good to be reminded that there's nothing we have to do. Oh, God, look, look, I'm in danger. Help me, help me. He'll give his angels charge over you. You believe that? They'll bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. He'll rescue you. He'll protect you from the killing sickness, the perilous pestilence, the destruction, the plagues, everything that threatens. And you're looking around the world thinking there's an awful lot of people dying, awful lot of people hurting. Yeah, 1,000 over here. 10,000 over here. But if you're dwelling in the secret place of the Most High, it won't come near you. You see it with your eyes. But you won't. It won't be part of your life. And you know, God does challenge us to put him in remembrance of his word but I hope you understand that's not because he forgets. He just wants to make sure we know that we are standing on a promise when we come to him in prayer. I don't know, I know I do this. I don't know if anybody else does. But do you find yourself ever saying, thank you, God, that my body is healed. Thank you that my needs are met and that I have an abundance. And you thank him again and again and again. Uh, and while what we are saying is theologically correct, we... It's not a thank you coming from my heart. It's a thank you of, it's, I've just turned my thank you into a faith's confession. Thank you that I'm healed. Thank you that I'm healed. My body is healed. Thank, and I thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for meeting my needs. Thank you for meeting my needs. Nothing wrong with thanking him for that. There's just something that strikes me as off in my own life from time to time. And again, I take it back to thank you, boss, that that raise is mine. Thank you. Thank you that you've promised. Yes, I received the manifestation of that raise. I look forward to seeing that in the envelope. Uh, and, what are you talking about? I told you it's yours. Enjoy it. Now, the difference there is, if I'm going to be real honest, is I know when payday is. And when God makes me a promise, I know that healing is mine, I know that abundance is mine, and, but I can't point to a, I can't put my finger on a calendar date where God says, and the manifestation will happen here. There's an element of just pure trust there, Right? True biblical gratitude produces, though, peace. It removes worry. 
And when we are to offer our prayers, our prayers for our, our supplications. When we're asking God for things, we, we offer these prayers and these requests with thanksgiving. We pray, we ask, and we thank him. And this is where our uh, faith's confession is. Let me look at, I want you to look at a couple of passages quickly with me because now we're tying this in with prayer, faith, and thanksgiving. In Joshua chapter 10, we read of where the Amorites and some other uh, tribes attacked the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were there in the early days of, of you know, when Joshua as leading the children of Israel into the land of promises. And, and God told them, don't you just drive them all out. Well, the Gibeonites say, oh, we come from a long way. These enemies that you're fighting, they're our enemies too. We just want to make a peace treaty with you. And they tricked them into making a peace treaty. And, uh, and one of the elements of this treaty, one of the provisions was, if anybody attacked the Gibeonites, who were really supposed to be wiped out by Israel, but Israel foolishly entered into this treaty, uh, but if anybody attacked the Gibeonites, Israel had to help him. Well, sure enough, here come the Amorites and some of these others start to attack the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites said, Israel, help us. You have to. And so Joshua leads his army against the Amorites and these other kings, and he's winning. God says, go on, go against them. I'm, I've given them into your hands. Everything's going well. There's no crisis except for this. It's getting dark, and they're not done slaughtering them. They are beating this army, and they're driving them away. They just need a little more daylight. All right, so here's what we read in verse 12, Joshua 10, 12. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the, so the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Here's all I want you to see. It says, Joshua spoke to the Lord in that day. But the only rec record we have of him saying anything is what? To the sun and to the moon. To the day. He's basically commanding time to stop so that he could finish doing what God told him to do. So did he speak to the Lord or did he speak to the Son? I believe he did both. I believe he spoke to the Lord and we don't have a record of that specific prayer. And God told him, day's not long enough, command it to be longer and I'll honor that. Hang on to that thought. James chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. But we read in 1 Kings 17, verse 1, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now if you read it in James, it looks like he prayed to God and said, Lord, please don't let it rain for three years. We read it in Kings. He's just going to King Ahab and saying it's not going to rain. We don't have the record of Elijah's prayer unless this is the prayer. I believe he prayed and God told him, uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to withhold the rain. Now you go talk to Ahab about it. There is a prayer. There's the supplication. There is the, there is the seeking direction. And then there is the declaration, the proclamation that follows it. Likewise, at the end of the drought, 
Once again, we don't see Elijah praying for rain. We have him declaring to Ahab. God tells him, go present yourself to Ahab, and I will bring rain upon the earth. And finally, and perhaps most famously, Mark eleven twenty three. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things which he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Now this is a verse about saying, right? Let read that again. I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things which he says Believes those things he says will be done. He will have whatever he says. Verse 24, therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you have received them and you will have them. So is this a verse about saying or praying or is the saying the praying? If you flip those around, Jesus says, uh, say, hey, whatever you pray for, believe and you'll receive. For instance, Say to this mountain, well, wait a second. How is saying to the mountain praying anything? The prayer is you speaking to God, spending time in his word, asking him to do something that he's promised, and then once we find the promise, thank him for it, and then from then on, what I'm speaking to is not to God. It's to my body. It's to my circumstances. It's to my need. See? I pray say, well, Lord, I'm sick. I go to him, and, it went, and, and, uh, and Lord directs me to a, to a promise. Oh, look here. I will put none of the diseases of the Egyptians on you. There'll be no sickness in your midst. You don't need to fear the perilous pestilence. Jesus healed them all. Thank you, Lord, for that revelation. Thank you for healing me. And then I say, I just speak to, wait, really talk to your body. Body, be well. Pain, go away. I declare that uh, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ that I'm healed head to toe, front to back, side to side, inside and out, that I am free of disease, free of malfunction, free of uh, any, uh, uh, any sickness and disease, any disorder in every bone and muscle, gland and organ, blood vessel, joint, ligament, tendon, ser- tendon, nerve cell, and tissue of my body and all the spaces in between. Is that a prayer? It's a confession based on a prayer, based on an answer. But I'm not speaking it to God, I'm speaking it to myself. Isn't that weird? You're going to speak to your checkbook. You're going to speak to your body. Jesus talked about speaking to a mountain. He didn't say speak to God about the mountain. He said say unto this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea. If I can speak to a mountain, I can speak to a debt. If I can speak to a mountain, I can speak to a tumor. I can speak to a headache, whatever, right? Speak to it. And then, well, then how often is it okay to say thank you? You say thank you every time you remember the good things God has done. But you don't say thank you. It's not a way of manipulating God. It's not a way of just convincing myself. It ought to be. And you only get to this point by spending time in the Word, spending time in devotional prayer with God. You just get to know Him, and then you just remember. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me of that, Lord. Thank you for that promise. You know, I think daily is certainly okay. When Jesus said, uh, taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, and he defines healing as the children's bread, I say it's certainly okay to thank him every day. Right? The rest of the time, I'm not saying what I'm saying to convince God to do something. I'm saying what I'm saying to enforce God's will in my body, in my life, in my circumstances, in my family. And we can surely thank him for that. Amen. Praise and worship team, you can be coming up here. 
Once we get that word in us, our response should reflect our conviction that it's true. And we speak that word in faith and things change. And that reality, that truth, should elicit a genuinely grateful response from us every time. Just a word from God is all we need. We don't need to see the manifestation yet. Just a word from God. Go your way, your servant is healed. Remember that? The centurion? I can receive a word from man with no particular love for me. You've got the raise. And I'll believe it, I'll rejoice, and I'll thank him for it. I can surely receive a word from God who loves me and who knows me and has bought me and paid a dear price for me. I can be just as excited, just as excited about the promise as we are about the fulfillment or the manifestation of that promise. But again, that's only going to come with spending time with him and his word. One more thing, stand up with me as I share this last thing with you. The most important application of this truth is when it comes to our very salvation. Uh, without going into my whole testimony, I can tell you, I saw, I saw a, a question on Facebook this week. I can't remember who posted it, but it's one of those, you try to get a lot of responses. And it was like, uh, what convinced you? What first convinced you that you needed a Savior? Or a salvation? Convinced you to be saved? And for me, it was fear. We go back when I was a little kid. I was afraid of death, afraid of hell. I was, af- I was afraid of death because I didn't know whether I was going to heaven or hell. I believed in heaven and hell. Why? Because I was raised in a home that believed the Bible. I just didn't know, and nobody had been able to show me, or I wasn't able to understand for the longest time, here's how you know. And so when somebody showed it to me in the Bible, here is this promise. Jesus did the work. All you have to do is trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. I didn't need a deep theological background. Not at that age. I was already almost 12 at this point. I just needed to be convinced that God loved me enough to have paid the price and made that path. And, when, now, and I read now, and I see that, wow, when you're saved, this happens. This changes. Your desires change. Your ability to please God changes. Your, 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 your ability to walk in, uh, in holiness changes. But I didn't need to see that in my life yet. I needed, uh, in order to know I was saved, I mean. I'm not saying this wasn't important. It's super important. I'm, I didn't, all I'm saying is when somebody showed me the God's promise of salvation, I didn't say, I'll believe that when I see it in my life. I was just grateful enough for the promise to say, thank you for saving me. And when I went to bed that night, I went to bed with tears rolling down my cheeks. I remember as goofy as all get out. I remember walking down the hall and just giving a big thumbs up to God because I was just so happy to have this burden lifted. Not that he'd rescued me from a life of depravity and everything, but because I no longer had to fear hell. Now, God has made glorious promises to his people, and he's made some very important commandments to his people, including us. Say we're not under the law. We're not under the law of sin and death. We're still under a moral law that he gives us the power to keep. I'm not ready to take that out. I'm not sure I can do it yet. Yes, you can. Trust him with your life. He'll set you on that path, and he'll give you everything you need to please him. But accept the gift first. Is there anybody in here who wants to make that decision today? You say, I'm ready to become a follower of Christ, to be saved, to be born again. I need that new life he offers. Whatever terminology you want to use, it begins with being born again. 
accepting that free gift. You say, well, what comes next? What comes next is whatever God says comes next, but he hasn't left it a mystery. You can read it in the word. Just don't pass on the opportunity to receive the free gift of salvation. I'm going to pray a prayer, all right? And then we're going to sing a song. If you desire to make that decision today, say, I'm not going to waste another day, and don't, because the Bible says that too. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.